Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. As we move this morning from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. And when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of all those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Medell. Good morning, friends. My name is Sean, and I am the brunt of all the jokes around here, if you don't know me. so This morning, I do need to start off with something very serious, okay? Are you ready for this? Why'd you say uh uh-oh? Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Come on! It's the first year, the church calendar is starting today. It is the first Sunday in Advent. You may like those pagan calendars, but I follow the Christian one. (laughs) So, Happy New Year. It's the first Sunday of Advent. We've redecorated. Let's start this new year off right. New year, new me. Okay, so last week, Pastor Amy, she wrapped up our series called The Whole Gospel, which I don't know about you, but I found super helpful, super informative, super stretching. And many of you have been new to Antioch over the past few months, and it's been encouraging meeting with some of you and hearing about how this kind of sermon was perfectly timed for you, give you a helpful perspective about who we are as a community, how we think through theologically a number of these important topics. So if you missed any, I would definitely encourage you to go back and check them out. But now we are on to Advent. As Amy mentioned just a bit ago, there are new prayer booklets in your seats that correlate with the start of this new year, so we encourage you to utilize those for spiritual formation tools this church year. Advent, as a season in the church calendar, I would say is one of the more well-known or popular ones. Uh, Maybe you didn't grow up in churches with a lot of liturgy or knowledge of the church calendar, but 
Even then, most people still tend to know Advent. You know, ah, it's closely related to Christmas. There's like four candles or something. And that's generally what we know about Advent for those of us who didn't grow up with a lot of liturgy. And so as we continue to embrace these different church seasons, we'll... I'm going to spend some time diving deeper into Advent together today, uh, but by way of brief introduction, it is a season of waiting. It reflects the expectant waiting of the coming Messiah, so it prepares us for the coming of the Christ child on Christmas. But it's also more than just waiting for Christmas because Advent has a threefold nature of past, present, and future. We know that God has come into the world through Jesus in the past. We know that he will come back to establish a new heaven and a new earth right here in the future. But our reality is in the present, which is the already but not yet, which Amy preached about last week. And if you missed it or you're still not sure about what the already not yet is, uh, if you are a parent, the best explanation I can give to you uh, is related to potty training, okay? Um, it is the experience of your child being already out of diapers but not yet fully potty trained, okay? So when we live in the middle of these two poles, it's messy, right? And I don't know if I'm talking about life or potty training, but it is tough to live in the present. Things are not as they should be. We get glimpses of the future when they sit on that potty, when things will be made right. And so we, we have to live in the time between the times. That's what Advent reflects for us. So today, and for the remainder of Advent, we are going to be following the Old Testament lectionary, and we're going to be focusing in on the book of Isaiah. Um, now, you may be asking yourself, in the season that prepares us for Christmas, why are we choosing to listen and learn from an Old Testament book like the prophet Isaiah, or even you heard the passage today, it's not even one of the good Isaiah ones, right? Uh, and so there are a couple of reasons. Um, one is sometimes in our present reality, uh, it can feel like the Old Testament is detached from the New Testament. We may not entirely know what to do with a lot of Old Testament passages or even whole entire books. And the, even the way that we talk about the Old Testament as Christians can reflect uh, this perception that the God of the Old Testament is very different from the God of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God can seem like a God of wrath and vengeance, but we see Jesus who seems to be all about grace and love. And there are actually a couple examples of this dichotomy recently in the news. If, uh, if any of you are college football fans, uh, Davo Sweeney is the coach of the Clemson Tigers. And, uh, oh, we got a Clemson fan. Did they make the playoff? No. Okay, shoots. Um, that's actually happening right now. I don't even know who's in. Okay. So, okay. All right. So anyway, one of the weird things about college football is coaches have weekly radio shows. What a country. Anyways, uh, a fan called in to Davo's weekly radio show. And he complained to Dabo that he was doing a really bad coaching job, especially compared to how much money he was making. And so in response, Dabo said that he was going to go Old Testament on the guy. And so what did it mean when Dabo went Old Testament? I mean, it was a lot of personal attacks. It was some cursing. It was some not very kind words about this man. So that's what it meant for him to go Old Testament. Here's another example. Uh, Tim Burchett, he is a congressman from Tennessee, uh, and after the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th in the Holy Land, he publicly declared that we are going to bring Old Testament justice on them real quick. That's 
I don't mean to pick on either of these guys, but their recent comments are illustrative of how many Christians view the divide between the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament God, and the New Testament scriptures, or the New Testament God. Wrath and judgment versus love and mercy. That in choosing to go Old Testament, the ethics of Jesus are inconvenient. They are ignored. You don't have to act like the God of the New Testament. A different moral standard of vengeance and retribution is somehow okay, because that is what the Old Testament is about. So whether we do this intentionally or not, we can make this distinction in our mind and conjure up a God of the Old Testament that looks little like Jesus. But when we do that with the Old Testament, we gerrymander love and mercy out of the story. And so to help avoid this distinction, I love what a pastor friend of mine says. He says, I think God has to be at least as nice as Jesus. <laughs> Which is like simple and silly, but also really true, right? And that, again, almost seems too simple to say, uh, but in a maybe more poetic version of the same sentiment, Greg Boyd says, Jesus is what God looks like when there are no clouds in the way. And so that's what we want to do as we dive into this Old Testament can liturgy, this book of Isaiah over the course of the next few weeks, especially in this season of Advent, is expectantly look toward the arrival of Jesus as this triune God who is one and the same, both the old and the new. So our text today, it does come from the book of Isaiah. It's a book based on prophetic preaching. It's a little different from some of our other books that we might be used to in the Bible because uh, prophets, they didn't fulfill their ministry by writing books. Uh, they showed up in public places. They told anyone who would listen to them what God was trying to speak or share with his people. So what that means is this book doesn't necessarily unfold like one complete story. It doesn't unfold like a normal book, but is a collection of messages or sermons, words from the Lord with many of the same themes often reoccurring. Uh, the book is divided into three parts, and it's fairly easy to separate them. And we're, by way of context, we're talking like 500s BC here. Uh, but the first part of the book of Isaiah is before the Israelites were exiled to Babylon. The second part of Isaiah is during the exile. And the third part of Isaiah, where our text comes from today, is post-exile. It takes place as many of the Israelites are returning home. They're trying to reclaim their old life, their old faith, and their old sense of being in the world. Our text today begins at the start of chapter 64, but is part of a larger prayer of lament that starts in verse 7 of the previous chapter. Like the Psalms of Lament that we may be more familiar with, this lament begins with the prophet recounting the great things that God has done. Chapter 63, verse 7 says, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. And so the prophet goes on to list many of these thing, good things, focusing especially in on one of the seminal moments in Israel's history. He talks about the exodus, the splitting of the sea, God saving his people in a completely miraculous way. But by the time we get to where our text starts today in chapter 64, the tone begins to shift. So our text begins, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. 
So the first two words of our text today give us a clue about how the people are feeling. When they begin a sentence as, oh, that, that means they are desperate. This lament may have started off with all of the amazing stuff that God has done in the past. They're now shifting into, well, why aren't you still doing any of that stuff? I mean, mountains, fire, water, quakes, scaring enemies, we'll take any of that. You've done it before, so we know it can be done, but you haven't done it recently. And what have you done for me lately? And so as we try to put ourselves in their shoes, here's what we know. They consider themselves God's people, and yet... We know that they were conquered by a foreign people. Many of them were sent away from their homeland. They either lived in exile or occupation, under occupation for years. After the people who had conquered them were conquered by another people, some of them were permitted to return home. They found that their temple was destroyed, and they are essentially trying to start all over again in the midst of disappointment and disillusionment. They're supposedly doing all of the right things, but the glorious restoration that they dreamed of is not happening, and they are questioning God as a result. Basically, they're saying, what is your deal, God? Are you going to show up here or not? This is waiting at its worst. Welcome to the first week of Advent. And so they are directly appealing to God to be the God that they think he is, the God that he has been to them in the past. And one interesting thing to note here about verse 1, when it says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, uh, in the context of an Israelite understanding of creation, they use a few different metaphors. In Genesis 1, uh, this past summer when we learned about it, we talked about this spatial division between heaven and earth, which they would view as like a firmament or a vault. But in Psalm 104, it uses the metaphor of the heavens as a garment of light draped around God's own body. So when the prophet here says to rend, which other translations might say to tear open, it is a Hebrew word almost always used for rending a garment. And in their world, this is a socially meaningful act, and we know of David doing this, right? Rending his clothes. It's not an act of frustration. It is a visible bodily, that's a new word for you, bodily expression of grief, lament, or remorse. So The prophet is not only voicing the people's lament, but dares to invite God to do the same thing, to rend his own garment, to cross the space between heaven and earth, to rip open the cosmic barrier and to descend to be with the people on earth, to bridge that gap and to cross the chasm of hurt and silence, and perhaps even to show God's own remorse. For these people, the, their reality of what they were experiencing as they return home is not lining up with their expectations. We've all experienced this disconnect in our lives uh, one way or the other. What we dreamed, what were our expectations of how something would go is not the same as our reality. In this Christmas season, we get to uh, experience that a lot. So I have a couple examples. Say uh, this holiday season, uh, maybe you want to build a gingerbread house, at, right? This is what we expect it's going to look like. <laughs> and in reality, every gingerbread house looks like this, right? <laughs> or every one that I've ever made, right? Um, Maybe, maybe your kids ask, you know, do you want to build a snowman? You're like, yes, this is, we're going to build an awesome snowman. It's going to look great. Uh, but then, of course, actually, it turns out looking like this, right? Like, <laughs> like no one has actually built a good snowman. Uh, or, or, or 
Maybe uh, you want to take your kid to meet Santa for the first time, <laughs> right? It's going to be great. Who doesn't love Santa? Santa brings presents, and of course, uh, it's not great, uh, and it looks a little bit different, right? <laughs> this is what it's like when our expectations and reality don't like. This is obviously way sillier examples uh, than the text, but... Uh, for the people in the book of Isaiah, their expectations of returning home, of what that would look like, is drastically different from their experience of feeling as if things weren't going that way. God wasn't responding. God wasn't showing up. God was remaining hidden in their lives. And while the world of the book of Isaiah and those people can feel like a long way off or drastically different from our reality, I wonder if you've ever felt the same way. Based on your experience with God, you know that he has done miraculous things in your life. You know that he has been present with you in the past. You know that he is your God. You know that you are his child. But have you ever felt like the Israelites where it seems like maybe God hasn't shown up in a little while? Again, you know all these things to be true about who God is. You're not doubting that. But if you're honest with yourself, you've wondered why he hasn't been looking out for you recently. Maybe you or a family member has been hit with a diagnosis and God doesn't seem to be fixing or healing that situation in the same way that you know that he could. Maybe you've encountered some employment challenges, losing your job, hating your job, struggling to find a job. You can look back and you know that God has been present in the past, but you're left wondering where are you now, God? In the midst of this, where are you now? It could be in any number of areas of your life, family relationships, uh, friendships, romantic relationships, finances, decisions you were trying to make. You know God has been there in the past, but it doesn't feel like he's there today. So what are we to do with that? What are the people in our text to do with that? And we see that in our text, the people of God were desperate for God to act. They were desperate for him to move because they had been abandoned. Their backs were up against the wall. And I know that sometimes when I'm in that situation, uh, I can respond or say things or lash out in ways in which, in which I hadn't. And so in this next chunk of the text, in verse 5, the people start by recognizing how they've fallen short. Their own sin has inhibited them from experiencing God. They're, they're starting to offer an apology to him. In verse 6, they, they say that they are all unclean, impure rags, soaked in blood, dried up leaves, dancing in the wind. But then they begin to lash out at God as well. In verse 7, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Uh, so this is beginning to feel like a non-apology apology. Have you ever received one of those or maybe given one of those? I've done both. I'm working on it. Um, you know, I'm sorry that you feel that way. <laughs> Not going to cut it, right? Uh, I'm sorry you were offended. I'm sorry that happened, but you did this first, so... And that's what the Israelites are doing here, right? We are sorry for how we have fallen short, but it's also kind of your fault. You gave us over to sin, so that's kind of on you, God, right? And so, I th again, I think if we're honest, we've all been there. In our desperation to experience God, in our desperation for him to move, for him to act, for him to heal, for him to solve, for him to change things, we can lash out with these questions or these thoughts or these emotions. 
But that's what I love about our text today. That's what I love about so many of the Psalms or many of these Old Testament passages is it doesn't gloss over this feeling. This is true. This is our experience. This is our reality. It doesn't try to hide it. It shares the raw reality of what they're experiencing, their questions toward God. But thankfully, the story doesn't stop there because verse 8, it says, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. So throughout the first seven verses of this chapter, the prophet laments that God is hidden, whether actively or passively, after, after our lectionary text ends for today, at where the chapter ends is in verse 12, and the prophet says this, after all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Basically, they're asking the question is, is this how it will be? Is this how things are going to continue, of you hidden, of, of us not being able to experience you? And in spite of everything that they have just said, even questioning God, and they're wondering about him holding himself back, the important thing that remains is the familial relationship. That even when it feels like God is hidden, God still relates to them, and God still relates to us as our Father. Even when it feels like he might not be showing up, God still relates to us like the potter who has formed us in the clay. No matter how hidden God may feel, he is with us like a caring artist or a loving parent. And during the summer of 1944, 15 months into a two-year imprisonment at a concentration camp that would ultimately end in his execution, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a famous letter to his friend talking about this very same challenge that the Israelites were going through, and that is the hiddenness of God. What are we to do when it feels like God is not present? What are we to do when it feels like God is not acting in the ways that we think that he should? And there are a couple of uh, famous phrases that came out of these letters, one of which has been quite controversial, but Bonhoeffer advocated for Christians to live as if there were no God. Gasp. Um, Many have taken this to say that Bonhoeffer, he was sacrificing his Christian faith, advocating for the pure resolve of humanity to tackle the world's problems, but that's not what he meant. What Bonhoeffer meant was that when Christians live in the world as if there were no God, they are actually offering a Christological affirmation of the way in which God chooses to be with us. That's confusing, but stick with me for a second, because another thing that he said was this famous phrase, before God and with God, we live without God. So emphasizing the reality of God's presence, of God being true, but he wanted to articulate, again, from his vantage point, he's in a concentration camp, the rise of the Nazis, World War II, death, war everywhere, was that the Christian faith was immature and inconsequential if it relied solely on a God who was merely an all-powerful solver of our problems. If you think back, maybe you took a theater class, maybe a literature class, uh, this trope is known as the deus ex machina. There is a huge problem that cannot be solved until at the end of the day, something literally drops out of the sky and saves the day for everyone. In the context of God, Bonhoeffer felt it was important for mature Christians to move away from this big guy in the sky narrative that God will just swoop down and solve every single one of our problems. That he is only the last resort when you've tried everything else. What Bonhoeffer wanted people to see was that the God of the gospel is with us perpetually. 
He lives with us in our weakness and our aloneness precisely as the suffering God. As we see in our text, when God seems to be hidden, it's not a cloak of humility, but a reflection of God's divine character and his determination to relate to the world through the vulnerable path of non-coercive love and suffering rather than through domination and force. Instead of this deus ex machina, we need to see the God of the cross, the one who has power in suffering and vulnerability. Not as a genie to swoop down and solve each and every one of our problems, but instead we see him like a potter and like a father. Because while God may feel distant or hidden from the Israelites, the usage of these two words, potter and father, suggest closeness and personal connection. Rather than tearing open the the heavens with fire, this imagery evokes a God whose mode of action looks more like an artist or a parent rather than a superhero. That God forms and shapes his people as a father over time shapes the character of his children or as a potter lovingly molds her clay with care and precision. It may not be that the big, the, be the big gestures that the Israelites wanted, another Red Sea parting exodus experience, but it doesn't make God's presence, God's care, or his concern any less real. What we see is that God's refusal to replicate a Red Sea and Exodus type experience does not mean that God has abandoned Israel. And it's the same thing for us. Our hope and our faith in God does not rely on God acting today in the same way that God acted in the ancient stories or even in the ways that he's acted before in our lives. But it does rely on God being the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. A God who hears our cries, a God who listens, who has not and will not abandon us and will redeem everything in that future version of Advent. And that he will do all of those things in ways in which we do not expect. We jump back to the beginning of this passage after the prophet calls on God to rend the heavens, move the mountains, all of that. Verse 3 says, For when you did awesome things that we did not expect... You came down and the mountains trembled before you. Do you see it there in the text? They know that God is the God of the unexpected, and yet their expectations are that he will show up in the exact same way that he did before. And sure, God does that, right? This passage celebrates the variety of ways in which God has shown up in the past, but if we limit how God shows up in our lives to only the ways that he has before, I think we might miss out on so much of what God has for us and how he's operating in our lives. We can put God in a box of our own expectations when in truth he is the God of the unexpected. Verse four tells us that God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And the words of the prophet here in the book of Isaiah remind us that God is and has been faithful and that he will show up and our job is to wait for that to happen. And what better season to practice waiting than the season of Advent? But I think we might need to reimagine what the waiting in Advent looks like. Because for me, when I think about waiting, it's almost entirely passive, right? It's about waiting at the DMV. It's about waiting at a doctor's office, right? Your job is to just sit there. There's nothing that you can do to move the process along. You are passive. But in Advent, we are called to an active waiting. It's about opening up our lives and our souls with active anticipation and renewed hope that God will return. 
Advent is situated to jolt us out of ordinary time with the invasive and in-breaking news that there are fresh possibilities for a new way. It dares to dream of a world of shalom, of a world where everything is made right. And yet, it recognizes that we have not arrived there yet. Because it can be hard for us to imagine a world where everything is right. Right? We look around, we see so much hurt, we see wars being fought, we see violence, we see racism, anti-Semitism on the rise, homelessness, hungry, the planet being abused. It is hard for us to imagine a world when everything is made right, when it feels so dark now. But I think it's in the midst of that darkness where we can see the beauty of the waiting that comes in Advent. It's, it's the noticing that things are not right which makes the waiting active in our lives. Because when I was young, I, I couldn't understand the emphasis on waiting in Advent. You know, what's the point? Can't we get to Christmas already? There is joy, and there are presents, and fun, and did I say presents, right? <laughs> but the longer that I follow Jesus, and now that I've experienced loss, I've, I've experienced grieving, I've wept, I've done all these things in my own life and with others who are hurting, I can see why Advent is important. It's in this in-between waiting, this already but not yet, that we see God manifest himself in ways we might never have expected otherwise. We begin to see that Advent is a time of preparation that requires us to confess our tendency to forget God or to turn God into something familiar. Unlike how I previously thought, Advent, it's not merely a bridge we must cross to get to Christmas. Well, we tend to think of the journey of Advent as us moving ever nearer to the presence of God. I think it's actually the other way around. It is God, through Jesus, coming ever closer to us and in so doing, radically changing our thinking, interrupting us and reorienting us towards God and his kingdom. So when it comes to this idea of expectant waiting, this journey of preparation of Advent, I'm beginning to see it's less and less about what we do, but Advent is actually a season of self-emptying of hollowing ourselves out so that we can become ready to receive the gift that Christmas has to give. The unexpected gift of Messiah who has come to save us from the temptation that we can save ourselves and disrupts our expectations of God. So why the Old Testament? Why Isaiah? Why this passage? Reading this passage at the beginning of Advent reminds us that we are not in control and that our relationship with God needs healing. Our sin too often manifests itself in our attempts to keep God in a box that we can manage of taming God's power. But this passage reminds us that God cannot be contained, that our expectations will be shattered, and we should be thankful for that because that also means that God's grace cannot be contained or measured in our expectations. As concluding our passage, verse 9 says this, Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. We see that this ends in hope. This verse reaffirms our identity as belonging to God, as being his people. We are the clay, he is the potter. Without God, we are just an inanimate lump without purpose. And not only does God have the power to mold us, he actually wants to mold us, to shape us. God wants to mold us into his divine image and likeness. So much so that God makes it clear when God molds the divine self on Christmas Day as a little vulnerable baby in a manger as God himself becomes the clay. From Isaiah's cry to rend the heavens and come down until the fateful day in Bethlehem where a little baby was placed in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes, 
That was more than five centuries. And in Advent, we recognize, mark, and reenact this long wait. And so I wonder, what might it look like for you to expectantly wait this season? If you feel the darkness, if God feels hidden, how might you open up space in your life, in your soul, in your body for God to show up? Because ultimately what we see here is the unity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New in Jesus, that the separation we make of a wrathful and vengeful God in opposition to a loving and gracious Jesus falls short, that as the clouds part, they are one and the same. In this season of Advent, as we expectantly await the arrival of the Christ child, we're reminded that God loves the unexpected, that God rends the garment and comes down in the form of a child in order to reveal that he is near to the vulnerable and the power that comes in his self-giving love on the cross, that he's present in our brokenness, he's present in our suffering with us. And in so doing, he shows us a father who is faithful even when we don't see it, who is patiently molding and shaping the clay of his beloved creation toward the reconciliation of all things. So, Antioch family, may we be a people who expectantly wait for the coming of God by opening ourselves up to meet him in unexpected ways this Advent season. Amen.